0: We're going to continue through our Gospel of Matthew following the King series. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 26 this morning. The title of my message is Demonstrating the Goodness of the Kingdom. You know, these days especially in our digital era, there are there's a lot of proclamation of the goodness of the kingdom, isn't there? There are a lot of people that are talking about how good the kingdom is. They're posting Facebook statuses and they're sharing podcasts and YouTube videos and 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 uh, and at church you hear sermons and And there's classes, and there's a lot of proclamation about the goodness of God. And that's great. We should all hear about just how good our king is and how good his kingdom is. But when Jesus would proclaim the gospel of the kingdom in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, his proclamation was almost always followed up with a demonstration He proclaimed the kingdom, and then he did the kingdom. He talked about how the kingdom was wholeness for humanity on all levels, and then he healed the sick, and then he cast a demon out of someone, and then he raised the dead. He didn't just talk about the kingdom, he did the kingdom. And I'm afraid that in today's world, we have too many people talking about the kingdom and not enough people doing the kingdom. And so as we look through these eight verses, that's going to be my focus is we all we've we've heard so much about the kingdom of God and about Jesus and what he's doing on this planet. How about we take a look at how he demonstrated the kingdom so that we can follow his example and demonstrate the kingdom to a world that is desperate to hear about the kingdom of God. So. We're going to read again Matthew 9, 18-26. This passage, it's going to contain two really well-known healing stories. Probably two you've heard before if you've been around church for any amount of time. The first one is about a woman who has a bleeding disorder. And the second one about a girl who, her father was a religious leader. and and the, And the girl died and Jesus actually raises this little girl from the dead. And as we go into this, what we're supposed to learn from these two healing stories and what um, the gospel writers intended to keep. when, When the gospel writers shared these two healing stories, it wasn't just to inform us that they happened. We know from the end of the gospel of John that Jesus healed so many people, all of the testimonies couldn't fit in a book. So it wasn't just to tell us that, hey, that one time, Jesus healed this person. Make sure you don't know that. Make sure you know that He did that. There's a message behind the healings. That's what I want to explore. There's a message behind these healings, and the message is really twofold: one, to know what kind of kingdom we're in, and two, so that we can follow Jesus' example in demonstrating the goodness of the kingdom or of life with God. So let's read the passage now. Matthew nine eighteen. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, "'Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well.'" And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, "'Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping.'" And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. These two healing stories show us what Jesus' kingdom is like and give us an example for how we ought to be demonstrating that kingdom. And as we go into this, what we ought to do before we get into the nitty-gritty is just review a little bit of what we mean when we say the word kingdom. I've already said the word probably ten times by now, but it's a word that can get lost in the Christian subculture and many different definitions can be proposed for. It can be a buzzword. So I hope by now that when I ask all of you, how would you define the kingdom of God? Your automatic answer would be the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God on the earth. And I'd simply say that because We've probably defined the kingdom at least five times in this series so far. But seriously, hold on to that. If you're ever, if you, before now, if that was like the definition of the kingdom was not something super clear in your mind, take on to that one. I think we have a, can you guys throw that up on the screen? The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God on the earth. This is what we mean when we say kingdom. When Jesus would say things like, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, he's saying the rule and reign of God on the earth is like a mustard seed. When Paul said that the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but of power, he was saying the rule and reign of God on the earth is not a matter of talk but of power. Kingdom is the rule and reign of God. And if that's the definition, the what's equally important to understand about the kingdom is its nature or kind of how it came to be on the earth and and how do we understand the fact that there's horrible evil and suffering happening on this earth at the same time as this supposed rule and reign of a good God on the earth. And so I wanna review a little bit of the nature of the kingdom. So to understand the nature of the kingdom, we have to start with what the first people of God the Israelites and the Jews, how they understood the kingdom of God. Because there's a theology of the kingdom of God going all throughout the Old Testament. And it's not one that is inconsistent with the New Testament, but the Jewish people of the time had a different understanding as to exactly what the nature of the kingdom would be than the New Testament authors would clarify and articulate. So can you throw that first slide up? The Jewish expectation of the kingdom was this. There was creation and the garden, all's good there. Then there's the fall of man, and we enter into what the New Testament authors call this present evil age. And in this present evil age, because of humanity's rebellion against God, and sin coming into the world, there's sin in the world, there's injustice in the world, there's suffering in the world, and there's evil in the world. And so the world is not a good place in many respects. But the hope for the Jewish people was that a Messiah was coming. And the Messiah was coming not just to save Israel, but to save and rule the entire world and do away with all of the suffering, injustice, sin and evil. In other words, the Messiah would usher in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, in contrast, this present evil age is marked with goodness and joy and love and justice. All of the things you would expect to see if a good God were truly ruling the earth. And so the Jews just thought this was going to be the order of events. Garden happened, this present evil age was going on, when the Messiah comes, this evil age is gonna be done with, and we're gonna enter into eternal life in the kingdom. So, the New Testament authors clarify and articulate this a little differently. The beginning starts the same, you can go to the next slide. You got creation, the garden, then there's this present evil age which leads up to Jesus. But the key difference, go to the next slide, is that when Jesus comes, this present evil age does not actually end. So he comes, he brings the kingdom in all of its goodness, love, joy, and justice, but the present evil age in all of its suffering, injustice, sin, and evil doesn't end. In fact, we have this kind of like overlap. You can go to the next slide this overlap of ages where the kingdom of God is here, the rule and reign of God on the earth is is happening, but at the same time, this present evil age is happening. And of course, the um, present evil age will end, but rather than ending at Jesus's first coming, it's going to end at Jesus's second coming. That was the message of Jesus, and of the New Testament authors. And so, going on to the last slide, we live in this in-between time where we're waiting for this present evil age to completely end with the second coming of Jesus, but until then, we live in this like battleground between goodness and evil, between God and Satan and the principalities and powers and all the forces of evil in the earth. And that's why in our current world, there's incredible, incredible goodness that we see, but then there's horrific evil. There's suffering, but there's joy. There's love, but there's um, there's love, but there's injustice. There's sin. I forget whatever one I didn't say yet. <laughs> the other one that's up there. So there's all of these things that are that are happening in one overlapping age. That is the age that we currently live in. We live in a time of conflict between God's rule and reign and the kingdom of darkness. A lot of people talk about Jesus coming as the beginning of the end. And so it's actually appropriate to understand with this paradigm in mind that the end of the world has already be- like been initiated. The end of this, of this existence as we know it has been initiated with Jesus coming and bringing his kingdom. So we are living in the last days. We are living in the end times right now. And then the end of the world will be completed or consummated at the second coming of Jesus and then we'll continue to live in, like we're living in eternal the eternal kingdom now Will continue to live in the eternal kingdom forever for those that are in Christ. So, one last point on this, it's, it's good to understand. In this time of overlap, God is not like waiting passively in this overlap time. He's not just waiting out the waiting out for the second coming of Jesus. He's not just like, all right, everyone, buckle up and hold on until Jesus comes back. No, God is on the move right now to make all things right in the world. That is what it means that the kingdom of God is here. That God is on the move to make all things right and he does this primarily in partnership with his people, with the church of Jesus Christ, with you and me. Not with just the professional church leaders and ministers, with the entire body of Christ. So, Diving into, we're going to dive into the text now um, and look at things a little bit more closely that we read earlier. And right off the bat, in this in Matthew nine eighteen through twenty six, the need for a better kingdom becomes immediately apparent, but not necessarily to our modern eye. So let's take a look a little bit about what was the time like when Matthew nine eighteen through twenty six was written. So. I want to highlight in verse 18 this term, a ruler. So not, a, not the thing that you use to you know, measure 12 inches. And, yeah. A ruler as in a, a uh, ruling official. And for us, the term ruler doesn't hit the same way. But for anyone reading this in the ancient world, upon reading the term ruler, they would immediately think a member of the elite in the Roman Empire. So in the Roman Empire, there, were, there was a group of elite at, that, w- that were the wealthiest, most powerful, those with the most status. There was a, this group up at the top of the elite of society, very similar to our current day, but the rest of society was drastically different than it is, at least in Western America. So let me just, I could paraphrase all of this, but let me just quote straight from my research on what the Roman Empire was like socioeconomically and socio politically. This is from a book called The Roman Empire in the New Testament. The Roman Empire was an aristocratic empire. Two to three percent of the population ruled. The elite did not rule by democratic elections. In part, they ruled by hereditary control of the empire's primary resources of land and labor. They owned its land, and consumed some 65% of its production. In case you that didn't register, 3% of the people ate 65% of the food. 3% of the people received 65% of the wealth. That's a pretty big inequality. Continuing on, just to give you a little more, the non-elite comprised about 97% of the population of the Roman Empire. An enormous gap separated the non-elite from the elite's power, wealth, and status. There was no middle class, big difference between us and them, and little opportunity for improving one's lot. More often, it was a matter of survival. Degrees of poverty marked the non-elite. Most scraped by in new periods of surplus and of deprivation so that regularly many non-elites lived at or below subsistence levels. Due to regular periods of food shortages... Poor health was pervasive. Infant mortality was high, with perhaps up to 50% not reaching age 10. Wow. Most non-elite adults died by age 30 or 40. Elite lifespans were longer. Urban life for non-elites was crowded, dirty, smelly, and subject to numerous dangers, floods, fires, food shortages, contaminated water, infectious diseases, human and animal waste, ethnic tensions, and irregular work. So the picture I'm hopefully painting for you is that the world of the Roman Empire, contrary to what the Romans said, which was that the Roman Empire ushered in peace and prosperity for all, the Roman Empire was a place of great, great suffering with lots of death and violence and disease with many different categories of marginalized people, some simply Socioeconomic marginalization, but ethnic and racial marginalization as well, religious marginalization. All in all, Rome's world created many categories of marginalized people with lots of different ways for them to suffer. And when Jesus came to bring good news, we must understand that it wasn't just salvation for individuals the way that our modern Christian lens likes to understand it, or has been trained to understand it. The gospel of the kingdom was not just good news for the damned soul, but good news for the poor, good news for the oppressed, good news for those who had experienced limb deformity from malnutrition, good news for all aspects of life. That was the gospel that Jesus brought. So with that said, let's go into the first point that I want to pull out on how we actually demonstrate this good kingdom that we are a part of. First, we demonstrate the kingdom by loving the marginalized in our society. So, of course, we read about the healing of the ruler's daughter, her being raised from the dead, and the healing of an unclean woman. And there's actually, in this passage, there are actually three marginalized people groups. So the first one would be children. Contrary to today, children were not viewed in antiquity as these, like, innocent, poor, sweet, tender, aww, kind of objects of affection. Children were viewed mainly with cynicism and distrust, like Children were viewed as going to disrupt kind of like the order of the adult world, but they were viewed as um, people that would be valuable in life later on once they were old enough and strong enough to start contributing to the household. And that's not to say that there wasn't parental love in the household for children, but the way society viewed children was extremely different. And there's no more horrific way that we see that than the practice of infanticide in the ancient world like in sparta for example whenever a baby was born that newborn would be taken to a council of elders and they would decide if the the male child looked strong enough to become a warrior or the female child looked strong enough to bear future warriors and if not if there was deformity of any kind if the Baby was just unusually small, whatever the case, literally they would fling the, the child off a cliff to die. And I know you might, have, you might have thought that that's dramatized in the movie 300 if you've seen that. It's not. That's exactly what happened. Same thing happened in Rome. It's horrible. They, um, the Roman, it was very normal for especially female infants to just be left on the side of the road to die from exposure. And actually, early Christians were the first group that began to value the lives of children. There's actually, you may have, um, you know, she's a saint in the Catholic Church, Macrina. She 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 lived in the fourth century, and was, she was famous for finding abandoned infants on the side of the road and raising them um, into adulthood. Probably, you know, did that with I don't exactly know how many, dozens, maybe even hundreds of children. And she was just one example of what the church, what the first group of followers of Jesus were doing. So, the, so children were marginalized in, in this society. And so Jesus healing, like raising a child to life, it sounds to us like that's almost the most noble thing that Jesus could do. But that was not the way that society that was not the morality of the society of the day. The society of the day would be like, why would you heal a child? Just let the child die, children die all the time, go find an adult to heal. So Jesus healing the child is him standing with a people group that had been dehumanized and made lesser then. Secondly, women of course were, were a marginalized people group. in antiquity. There was no such concept of human rights for anybody in this day and age, especially not women. Women were property. They had no bodily autonomy. There was no such thing as being raped by your husband. That was, that was just totally fine and, and legal to do. Women um, would be forced to have abortions sometimes by their husbands. So women just were an extremely marginalized group in this time as well. I could go on. And then thirdly, the fact that the woman in this group was unclean because of her I mean, I mean, the woman in this passage that we read about, she was unclean because of her bleeding disorder. That was a third marginalized group of people. Those who were unclean were banished from society. They weren't able to have normal relationships. They weren't able to provide for themselves. They would either die of starvation and exposure or beg and receive enough money to barely survive. So why did I go into all of that history of the horrors of antiquity because Jesus loved on and stood with the marginalized that was a key aspect of his kingdom was being with the people who society treated like garbage who society treated as worthless and the church of Jesus Christ that came out of those original 12 apostles and spread all throughout the Roman empire were known for being radically countercultural to the Roman empire of the day in how they treated those kinds of people now caveat is that before you before you think whatever you're going to think about me the caveat to this is that Jesus obviously was not anti-elite he was not like you know raise up the marginalized and destroy the elite right because he healed the elite, the member of the elite's daughter. He healed the ruler's daughter. So Jesus didn't just come for the marginalized, but he did say that it's actually a lot harder for the rich or for the elite to enter the kingdom of God. Because, um, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. They don't have the same desperation. They're, they're in a sense, they don't need good news because their life is deceptive t- to them good news. So Jesus, anyways, all I have to say, Jesus, he wasn't anti-elite. He did come for everyone, not just the marginalized, but he came especially for the poor, the broken, the marginalized. If any of you are feeling any kind of tension right now with me talking about this, it's it's actually pretty fine and normal because there has been this raging debate happening within kind of like spot of our sect of Christianity, if you will, for decades now. And amongst people in Christianity who are passionate about the kingdom of God, who are passionate about the rule and reign of God, you typically find two rival factions. You've got the power and presence Christians, and you have the social justice Christians. This is like a you know maybe you've never maybe you've seen or felt this before maybe you haven't but i can assure you this is real you know there's this facebook forum that i'm on and i don't know even know why i'm still on it but <laughs> it's just seriously it's just so toxic but constantly back and forth you've got the holy spirit christians you know, arguing with the social justice Christians and the social justice Christians criticizing. the whole, And, and the, the presence and power Christians, what they say is that social justice Christians are trading the work of the spirit for the work of secular activism. And there's some truth in that. What the social justice Christians say about the presence and power Christians are that they're like the super spiritual Pharisee and Levite who just walked by the beaten and bruised man in the parable of the Good Samaritan, not wanting to get their hands dirty. And there's some truth in that as well. And again, both of these groups, they justify their position with kingdom theology. They might use different verses that talk about the kingdom. The presence and power Christians love to, quote, 1 Corinthians 4.20, which I said earlier, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And the social justice Christians love to quote James 2.5, which says, Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom? And so they'll, they'll quote different parts of the Bible that discuss the kingdom. But both of these camps would say that kingdom theology The embracing of kingdom theology is what led them to their current place. So which camp is right? Should we be a presence and power Christian or should we be a social justice Christian? Well, let's have Jesus weigh in on this, although I think some of you are already seeing where I'm going. So Jesus, in perhaps his most famous and most pointed articulation of the kingdom... Luke chapter 4, where he quotes the prophet Isaiah, Jesus says this, verse, verse 16 through 19. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Leave that up for a second. So as Jesus starts to talk here, the first thing he says is, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Presence and power Christians are like, yeah. Then the second, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Social justice Christians are like, yeah. And then <laughs> and then, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. At that point, both raised their fists because... Liberty to the captives to presence and power Christians means casting demons out of people. Liberty to the captives of the social justice Christians means those who are literally enslaved or held captive are set free. Recovering of sight to the blind, presence and power Christian language. At the liberty of those who are oppressed, both and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, arguably both and. So what do we see? We see that kingdom people, people who are truly committed to the kingdom of God are as radically committed to Holy Spirit ministry as they are to justice ministry. Both, these are two non-negotiable parts of participating in the kingdom of God. And our, the founder of the Vineyard Movement, or at least the first major leader, John Wimber, he did this. John Wimber is famously quoted as having said, when, when a reporter asked him, Why do you think such miracles and such powerful encounters with the presence of God are happening at your vineyard church in Anaheim? John Wimber famously said, because we take care of the poor. And John Wimber, he truly believed that, he said this multiple times, that God's blessing was on the vineyard movement because of how it took care of the poor. Not because of how hungry it was to see the power and presence of God. That played a part for sure. God wants us to be zealous and hungry and going after his power and his presence. But at least according to John Wimber, that wasn't the reason that favor was resting on the movement. So the division of these two priorities of the kingdom, I just wanna call it out, is blatantly a demonic strategy to undermine the church's kingdom effectiveness. Satan and the principalities and powers on the earth take such delight in the fact that the church has split the kingdom into two priorities that are supposed to be in unison, but are not. At least not to the degree that they ought to be. So I really think we can be a church that marries these two things. And I think that we've been, we've been very passionate about the power. And pre- I mean, we are a power and presence church, obviously. That's, that is who we are, right? And we've never been anti-justice ever. But I do think, and without losing any of, like, I don't want to lose a single drop of the intensity and the tenaciousness that we have for Holy Spirit ministry. In fact, I want to see it continue to ramp up. Without losing any of this side, I think there's an opportunity for us to begin to explore what does the kingdom ministry that brings justice to the poor look like? And how can we be a church that participates in that? We demonstrate the kingdom by loving the marginalized in our society. Secondly, this would be the most obvious takeaway from the passage. We demonstrate the kingdom by healing the sick. We did, after all, just read two healing testimonies. Jesus raised a girl from the dead, and he healed a woman with a bleeding disorder. And healing ministry is not just good for people's bodies, but it is good for the advancement of Christianity into our society as a whole. One of my favorite verses that demonstrates this is 1 Corinthians 2, three through five. This is Paul talking about when he first brought the faith of Jesus to the Corinthians. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Man, I want to have a faith that does not rest on the wisdom of man, but rests on the power of God. Don't you? One of the times in my life that I saw this the most clearly was I was on vacation with some of my cousins, my family, their family, you know, I have have male cousins around the same age as me on both sides, and I was sitting down with one of my cousins, and this particular cousin of mine, he, you know, he might have been saved at that point, um, but he had never Gone to church probably on his own. He 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 was by all means he was a he was an unbeliever, and he, we were talking, and he knew that I was in ministry, but he also knew because I had tried to pray for healing for him a few times and never saw anything happen. Really embarrassing moment uh, because he knew that I kind of was into the supernatural. And I remember one time I tried to pray for for him to get he actually lost his taste and smell not because of covid but because of a traumatic head injury and so i prayed for him to get his taste and smell back didn't happen his uh, his taste eventually did come back later on so yeah god but but nothing happened in the moment and so he it was kind of awkward and so that was our context you know he knew that i believed in supernatural stuff even though it obviously weirded him out well uh, about six months after I had prayed from that first time, we were hanging out at my parents' lake house. And it was just him and I sitting outside at night. And I could tell that something was on his mind. And I could just tell that he was really wanting to talk to me about something. And so I just kind of looked at him. Hey, man, like, you know, how are things going? What's going on? Like, what's your life like back home? And, and he went on to start telling me about how he had been having this extremely frightening experience that was ongoing, that would happen multiple times a day, and had been going on for weeks now, where as he was sitting in a room, not on any drugs, not having taken any alcohol, certain objects in the room would like enlarge to 10 times the size as what they actually were. And so really it was freaking him out. Said, Why is this happening? And, And what was freaking him out even more was that all of this started a few weeks earlier when he had this really weird experience with a psychic and a ghost hunting gun that he found online. Okay, stay with me. So so I guess what had happened was he had gone to this abandoned building, or no, I'm getting ahead of myself. He had first went to a psychic with a friend and thought it was all complete nonsense, was laughing the whole time, was not taking any of it seriously. And the psychic is giving him readings and he's just kind of, you know, according to him, they were completely off and, and not making any sense to him. But then the last thing that she said kind of perked up his attention was that, hey, there's a, there's a spirit guide with you named John. And he's like, oh, okay, John. Yeah, John's with me. Like, and it wasn't like a, not like a, not the, not not like the Apostle John or a biblical John, like a ghost named John or something. So that happened. And then a few days later, unconnected, he and his friends decided to go visit an abandoned building in the area where they lived where ghosts were supposed to be. And they had bought this ghost hunting gun online that you could like, you know, it's like, I don't exactly know how it works, but, I imagine it was like a laser, or like an invisible laser you'd point out, and it would tell you if the ghost was there. <clears throat> so they're exploring this place, and, you know, they're shooting around different things. They're finding different, they're finding different ghosts, and then the last ghost they find that uh, my friend Nick, or my cousin Nick, as he pointed the gun out, uh, the ghost name came up on his little device as John. So he's like, oh, that's weird. The psychic just told me I had a Ghost named John will follow me around. Well, shor- shortly after that, he started having that experience where images would enlarge to ten times their size, and you know, in his perception, and he started just feeling like he was being watched all of the time, like he was never at peace. And his anxiety is increasing, his fears increase, and so he tells me all of this extremely sheepishly, even though he knew I was interested in the supernatural. I could tell everything he told me. He th- thought I was going to tell him he was crazy with every. Passing sentence, I didn't. Long story short, I just felt this boldness come over me, and and I felt this faith really come on me to tell him, like Nick, you are going to be completely freed from whatever this John thing is right now. And I prayed for him, and um, he just, you know, he. he all the things you'd expect. He felt peace. He felt freedom. There was this particular window of a neighboring house where he had been seeing this image and the, the image was gone. And then that night, he, I let him, him in saying a prayer for salvation. He accepts Christ. And then that night, he falls asleep listening to, he wasn't much of a reader, but listening to the gospel of John on the U version on his phone. So why do I tell you all that? Certainly not to brag because I've had way more failure stories than than (laughs) ones that worked out that way. I tell you that because it's the presence and the power of God, not just talked about but demonstrated, that sets people free. It's the demonstration of the power and the presence of God that this world needs. They don't just need to hear that our world, they don't just need to hear that the kingdom that Christians claim has come, is a better kingdom than the one that they're living in. They need to see it right before their eyes. There's this episode of Everybody Loves Raymond that I wanted to show you all, but we couldn't get around the copyright, where um, Ray, the husband, if you haven't seen it, he he buys this vacuum cleaner from a door-to-door saleswoman. And when his wife, Deborah, gets home, she is just like, you got suckered into buying this thing, you got manipulated, like how could you fall for that? And he's insisting, no, 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 this thing is amazing. And he's, he's vacuuming and trying to show her how amazing it is. And she's like, no, 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 like you got suckered, we're gonna take this thing back. And as she's insisting that they return it, Ray takes the top part of the vacuum compartment off and pulls out this like bottle of water where all the dirt had gone, it's like filthy. And the second that Deborah sees that, she goes, her, her countenance completely changes, her demeanor completely changes, she goes, wow. And then she starts vacuuming with the vacuum right after that, right? This is what happens a lot of times when we demonstrate the kingdom. We can talk about it all we want. We can talk about the goodness of the kingdom till we're blue in the faith, face. But, or faith. <laughs> or faith. <laughs> We can talk about it until we're blue in the face. But when we actually demonstrate the kingdom, everything changes in people's lives. So all that to say, when we commit ourselves to to the ministry of the spirit, to casting out demons, to healing the sick, we demonstrate, not just proclaim, the goodness of the kingdom that we are a part of. One more thing on this. You might mention that the point I made was we demonstrated the kingdom by healing the sick. But the story I told wasn't actually about healing. It was more about uh, deliverance. I did that intentionally. When we, we need to have a, we, our understanding of healing needs more depth than what it, for a lot of us, it does. For, for me, what it has been in the past. Take a look at this particular part of Matthew 9. She said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Everyone say, Made well. Made Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Notice the repetition. And instantly the woman was, uh, notice a third time, made well. What is that term made well? The Greek word here is the Greek term sozo. And the Greek word sozo gets translated in a bunch of different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes it gets translated as saved. Sometimes it gets translated as healed. Sometimes it gets translated as delivered. It gets translated in all these different ways. What sozo is, is all of it. Sozo is healing, it's salvation, it's deliverance. You can throw the definition up. It is the work of God in the earth to set all wrong things right. Can you throw out that definition of sozo? I think it's the next slide. Thank you. Healing, salvation, and deliverance, the work of God in the earth to set all wrong things right. This is sozo. And so healing is just one aspect of this bigger work called sozo that God is doing in the earth. And that is the that's what the yeah, the world needs us to demonstrate the world needs us to demonstrate healing. You know, some people get laser focused in on healing, that's all they ever go after. That's fine. Um I would just hope someone who is like that has a buddy that they're in ministry with who goes after deliverance and another person that goes after gospel proclamation. Because Um, God is, he wants to heal the world, but even more so, he wants to sozo the world. He wants to set all all wrong things right. I have to talk about this next thing. I don't want to, I know we're getting towards the end of time. Okay, my next point, I'm just going to skip some things. We demonstrate the kingdom by cultivating a lifestyle of faith. Talking about Christian debates, this passage is debated on a whole other front, in Christianity and the debate is based around what happens with um, what, or how to understand Jesus' words in verse 22 just to remind you Jesus turned and seeing her he said take heart daughter your faith has made you well what does it mean that her faith made her well does it mean that it wasn't actually jesus's power that made her well but it was something that like in her that made her well was it both of those things together some of you maybe have read matthew 11 where jesus says if you have faith you don't need to throw it up but if you have if you have faith and you don't doubt but you believe you can move mountains i remember first hearing that verse and i would sit in my apartment in clifton and like i'd be like i would look at this picture on my wall and like I have faith that this is going to move right now. I just would expect it to shift, but, you know, it never did. <laughs> um, you know, I try to move stuff with my mind based on that, that verse. Um, you know, I, if I just don't doubt, if I just have no doubt, I can make anything happen, I can move mountains. And, and so there's this, there's this debate amongst Christianity about what does it mean that her faith had made her well? And I don't have time to go into a full, in-depth explanation of it. But here's what I'll say. Faith is and isn't just expectation. There is a sense in which faith is expectation. Where if you have confidence, if you have expectation that God is going to move you are more likely to see God move. But it isn't just expectation because the Greek word for faith in the scriptures, pistis, it actually more so carries the idea of trusting love or trusting loyalty. It wasn't used by the Jews. It wasn't just used by the Christians. The Roman Empire used this term to talk about subjects of the empire having trusting loyalty in the emperor or trusting loyalty in their local king. And so, faith is and isn't just loving trust in God. So it is and isn't just expectation. It is and isn't just loving trust in God. It's both of those things, but it's not. Um, it's it's both of those things. It's not just one of those things. What I am confident of, however is that there is a proper order to growing your faith. And the proper order is that if you live your life cultivating a trusting loyalty, a trusting love in God, as that relationship with God develops, your expectation that what you thought was impossible is going to happen is going to naturally increase as well. So that's my quick talking point on a topic that has a lot of controversy around it. Finally, we demonstrate the kingdom in our attitude toward death. Some people, when Jesus said, the little girl, she's not, she's not, uh, she's not dead, she's only sleeping. Some people think that Jesus literally meant that she wasn't actually dead. Others say that um, Jesus was using the term sleep to as a synonym for death, but that wouldn't make sense because then we'd have Jesus saying, don't worry, she's not dead, she's just dead. So, yeah. <laughs> What's really going on here is that Jesus is commenting on how death is no longer finality if you are in the kingdom of God. You know, In, in describing the girl's death, not as death, but as sleep, Jesus is making a statement about death itself. Death is no longer the end. It no longer is the ultimate master over humanity. Based upon the resurrection of the dead that Jesus will soon accomplish, death is now something that human beings will experience but then will wake up from. Death will be stripped of the chief power it has always had over humanity and over the earth. This is why in the days of the early church, Mothers with infant children would willingly be martyred and hand their babies off to family members. Something unimaginable as today, but for them, death was not the end. And the life they were living was not the primary one they were living for. They were living for the next one. And although we love to see the kingdom come in the here and now, especially at this church, let's not forget that ultimately we're not living for this life. We're living for the next one. So would you stand with me? Shane? you can come on up. Prayer teams, I'm going to invite you forward. We're a little light on volunteers today, so if you're a staff member or a ministry leader, you'd be willing to come on up and pray. Please come on up and pray. We'd really appreciate that. I think for some in the room, demonstrating the kingdom through you, has not been happening as much. And it could be from apathy. It could be from hard-heartedness. It could be from fear. It could be from pain. But I think God wants to inspire all of us afresh to not just talk about Jesus, but demonstrate Jesus. So I'm just gonna pray a prayer for all of you and and then we'll close. So Father, we wanna be people who in our lives release your kingdom through, through how we love and how we pray and how we look at life. We wanna be a model of the goodness of the kingdom of God. We wanna see the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit carry your goodness to a broken and lost world. We wanna be people who love the unlovable, who love those that society denigrates, or even our Christian subculture um, looks down upon. We want to be the people that love beyond walls and beyond borders. Make us into those people. We honor you, Jesus. We praise you. In Jesus' name.